0: I would uh, dare anyone to find me a, a a better, cooler description of angels than uh, winged squadrons of the sky. I mean, it's pretty cool. So, all right. But here we're going to be turning to Matthew chapter 21 as we think upon Jesus' triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday long ago. And so, we don't aren't beholden to any church calendar necessarily, but it's sometimes helpful for us uh, to recognize certain days. As next week will be Easter as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Uh, So this Sunday uh, commences that week leading up to that day of resurrection. And it begins with Jesus uh, riding triumphantly upon a donkey into Jerusalem. And so we'll draw out uh, some uh, truth and the gospel here in Matthew chapter 21. Before we read though, let's pray that God might bless this word to us. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, living and active. Thank you that you speak to us. And Father, as your word is proclaimed, may you give us ears to hear, even eyes to see the glory of Christ our King. The glory of his kingdom today is hidden, and yet, Father, you have revealed it upon, on your pages, the kind of king who Jesus is, a king who has conquered through weakness, a king who has laid down his life that he might save his people. And so, Father, as we think upon Christ, may our eyes be fixed upon him. And may his glory shine forth, we pray in his name. Amen. So Matthew 21, we'll begin reading at verse 1 and read through verse 11. This is the holy and inspired word of God. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, that's Jesus and his disciples, and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. "'Untie them and bring them to me. "'If anyone says anything to you, "'you shall say, the Lord needs them, "'and he will send them at once. "'This took place to fulfill what was spoken "'by the prophet, saying, "'Say to the daughter of Zion, "'Behold, your king is coming to you, "'humble and mounted on a donkey, "'on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. "'The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. "'They brought the donkey and the colt "'and put them on their cloaks, Galilee, so far from God's holy word. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is this? That's the question at stake here as Matthew recounts for us the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. The question of identity, who is this that is approaching Jerusalem? Who is this who has now come? And as we see, the crowds had a certain expectation and a certain definition of who this was. They say at the end of this passage here that he is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth of Galilee. And they had certain expectations behind them as Jesus came riding into the city of Jerusalem. But as we're going to see, their expectations were not in line with exactly who Christ really was. They had their certain expectations of who the Christ should be, who the one coming should be, and what kind of victory and what kind of salvation he should bring. And on the other hand, then, you have what the actual person and the actual identity and the true victory that Jesus comes to Jerusalem to accomplish. And so you have expectations, and you have Matthew providing us with the truth in the midst of those expectations. And many of us may have our own expectations. We've heard the name of Jesus all over the place. Um, It's probably not an unfamiliar name to us. We know Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the one who delivers us. But in what manner does he deliver? What's the nature of his deliverance and the kingdom that he has established, right? We can have expectations, but those expectations may at times need to be corrected, even as we're going to see the crowd's expectations need to be corrected. Because the very same crowd that's proclaiming Hosanna to the son of David will be shouting crucify him later that week. Their expectations were not met as Jesus reveals himself in Jerusalem. And so those who praise his arrival as the salvation of God come demand that he be crucified and put to death. And not to become allegorical but often We have our certain expectations of what the Savior from heaven should be, what he must deliver us from, what must his kingdom be like, and when those who learn of the true nature of his kingship and the true way of his salvation, rather than following him, they desert him, rather than giving their lives to him, they seek to take his. And so expectations are important, and the question that the crowds are asked, who is this, is one that remains important for us even today. And so as we think about Jesus riding into uh, Jerusalem and the way in which it reveals who he truly is and the kingdom that he is bringing, we want to think over three points here. First, we want to think about the city and the prophecy regarding David's royal city. Secondly, the potentate riding into David's city. I needed another P, so king didn't work, so you have a potentate (laughs) The prophecy, the potentate, and the people rejoicing in David's royal city. So the prophecy, the potentate, and the people as we think about the question, who is this? And so first, the prophecy regarding David's royal city. Many of us know that Jerusalem has a great history behind it up to this point. And knowing some of that history helps us to understand who it is that Jesus is coming into this city. What was expected? What was the atmosphere around this city even during Jesus' day. And part of that atmosphere has to do with the history. Now, we can't recount every detail regarding the city of Jerusalem, but we can highlight a few major points. And so if you have your Bible, turn with me first to Genesis chapter 49. Or you can listen if you don't feel like turning. Genesis chapter 49. Here, Jacob, as he's soon to die... Uh, blesses his 12 children, who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And he pronounces a blessing upon each of them in a sort of prophetic way. And in Genesis 49, verse 10, he speaks specifically of the tribe of Judah, who become known as the royal tribe, and from whom David would uh, be born. King David, that is. And so, uh, uh, Genesis 49, verse 10, simply says this regarding Judah, the scepter, and you think about a scepter is one that is in the hand of a king. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so this begins a prophecy of kingship. A king is to come, and the king is to come from Judah specifically, and the king from Judah is to have in his hand a scepter that shall not depart from him. He shall be an eternal king. As Israel's history progresses, eventually God looks upon one after his own heart, a shepherd keeping the flock, namely King David. And David is one after God's own heart, whom God would establish from the tribe of Judah as the king over Israel. And David is eventually through, uh, after being hunted by Saul and cast out of the land, yet returns. And the Lord establishes him upon the throne. King David is reigning over Israel. And his first act, if you notice in 2 Samuel chapter 5, his first act as king pertains to the city of Jerusalem. 2nd King chapter 5 verses 6 through 12 says this. And the king and his men, speaking of David and his men, went to Jerusalem. At the time it was inhabited by the Jebusites, as it says here, enemies of God's people. So the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites and let him get up, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from Milo inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel, right? So David is now newly installed as king of, over Israel and he and he goes and conquers the city of Jerusalem and establishes it as the royal city. And so the one in whose hand the scepter will not depart will reign in Jerusalem as the city of David, the royal city, and there a house is built A palace is built for King David from which he might reign. And King David is living in his house and he looks out of the windows of his house and he sees that though he dwells in this magnificent palace, God still remains in a tent. Remember Israel, God had dwelt in the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And he says in in his heart, well, I'm going to build the Lord a house. So David uh, desires to build God a house and it's going about plans to make this. But then God speaks to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 regarding this house. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 and following there it says, as the prophet Nathan comes to Daniel on behalf of the Lord saying, Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall not afflict them no more. As formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that you to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And going down to verse 16, it says, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so now from here on out, The sons of David will reign as kings over Israel with this great promise that God has given, that David will never be without a son upon the throne. So all the way back from Genesis when Jacob blessed Judah that a scepter shall not depart, David now being raised to the throne and having this covenant made with him that his sons will reign from Jerusalem. All of that stands behind the history of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And as, that, as the sons of David reign upon the throne, you can read throughout the books of First and Second Kings how there's a great decline. Rather than recognizing that they are those to represent God's reign over the city of Jerusalem and the whole of Israel, they instead take it into their own hands, reject God's law, and cause great injustice to run throughout the land. And God's judgment comes upon the people. And yet the people believed that despite their disobedience, despite their hardness of heart and their stiff-neckedness, despite all of that, God's promises are, will stand anyway. And they have no reason to fear. And so, for example, uh, one king was reigning in Jerusalem when Sennacherib was the king of Assyria at this time, from coming from the northeast of Israel. And Sennacherib is just running through the land, conquering city after city, nation after nation, and he makes his way up to the very gates of Jerusalem, and the people there are behind the walls, unsure of whether Sennacherib will be able to conquer Jerusalem or not. The Lord sends a prophet to the king and tells him that God himself will defend the city of Jerusalem, and the next day, God himself attacks Jerusalem. Sennacherib and his army, so they are um, routed and ultimately sent back to their land. God saved and protected Jerusalem from the fierce king of Assyria. And the people again began to assume that Jerusalem could never fall. And yet, rather than heeding God's warning and these coming judgments that are at their gates, they instead continue in their disobedience so that eventually the Babylonians come and level the entire city of Jerusalem, as God departs from that city. God then, as his people are in exile, are sent away from Jerusalem, the city, the temple, all of it is destroyed. Their home is, is done away with. And God, yet in the, in, with his mercy, promises his people in exile that they will return and that he will rebuild them a city, which you could read about in the book of Nehemiah, as they are sent back, they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. In Ezra, we read of the rebuilding of the temple. And here, Jerusalem has come back, um, in a sense, from the dead, re- uh, resurrected, in a sense. And regarding this city, then, though it was not a city in which the full salvation of God had yet been experienced, from this city, the prophets looked forward to a day when God would uh, raise up a deliverer who would again come with the great glory of, uh, of Jerusalem again. And so in Zechariah uh, chapter 9, we read this great prophecy, which then catches us up to Jesus' day. So Zechariah chapter 9, it says there, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And these words should sound familiar to you. They were the words that Matthew cites in Matthew 21 as Jesus himself rides into the city of Jerusalem. And so it's important for us to see the prophecy regarding David's royal city. That from this city, a savior, a, a deliverer, A son of David would be raised up and would come bringing righteousness and salvation uh, to this city. that leads us to our second point now, then the potentate riding into David's royal city. And it presses us deeper into that question, who is this? And the prophecy of Zechariah is one that reveals to us who this is, at least in part. As the prophecy is quoted, it is said, your king is coming to you. He is the king. He is the Messiah. He is the one you've been looking for. The one who will bring righteousness and the one who will bring salvation. He is that king. Humble, other translations, gentle, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. Burden. And here we are revealed three things about this king, King Jesus. First, the nature of his kingship. Here, as he rides into Jerusalem, he rides not on a war horse with an army behind him, he rides into there not with political aspirations, economic prosperity. He rides in humble, he rides in gently. The nature of the kingship that Jesus is bringing is not one that the people expected. They knew a king would come, but their their earthly mindedness caused them to look for a king who merely would set them free from Roman oppression and reestablish them in their land that they might have freedom to live as God's people. They lost sight of the fact that their greatest enemy, the, the greatest stronghold over their lives was not Rome, but death and sin. And Matthew earlier in his gospel said that Jesus shall be called Jesus as the angel speaks to Joseph. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he shall save his people, not from Rome, but from their sin. The people lost sight of the fact of their spiritual standing before God was bankrupt. And they lost sight of the fact that it was not by the blood of bulls and goats that their sins could truly be forgiven from them. They were not spiritually aware and therefore they had certain expectations of this king coming who would simply give them political freedom and who would simply establish them in on the earth and bring with him prosperity. If such a king was to come, you would expect then that yes, this king should have an army behind him and yes, this king should be one with great rhetorical flair who can sway the crowds. And yet, rather than such a king, as they expected, he comes gently. He comes humbly. That is the nature of his kingship. One commentator, Herman Ritterboss, a good Dutch commentator, says this, The coming king of whom the prophet speaks will not be a violent ruler who flaunts his power, but rather a gentle and humble leader who is willing to stoop to the weak and the lowly his riding on a donkey and hum, uh, demonstrates this for he thereby deliberately casts aside all outward glory and all signs of power and worldly ambition and said he comes as the king of peace who will rule not with the sword but with gentleness and with meekness again if the greatest threat that he came to save them from was Rome then yes an army would make a lot of sense but if the threat that he came to save them from was sin, and the only way sin could be dealt with is through the shedding of blood, then the kind of king who rides into Jerusalem then is not. It must be one who comes humbly, ready to lay down his life. And it's this reason that as Jesus doesn't meet the expectations of the crowds around him, that those crowds who proclaim Hosanna in the highest now proclaim later that week, crucify him, crucify him. He did not meet their expectations, and yet, yet his coming was exactly what they ultimately needed. They needed one who would come gently, humbly, lowly. They needed one who would be able to save them from their sins by laying down his life. They needed one not to come in great strength of arms, but in the weakness and humility of heart and a great love for his people to lay down his life. That is why he's writing in there. And it's why he comes in such a way. And so we've seen first the nature of his kingdom, but then also we've been touching upon this already, but the way, the manner of his kingdom, and it's very paradoxical. Again, the people don't fully understand this and in many ways Jesus riding in as he orchestrates this he tells his disciples to go and get a donkey uh, and and um, and a cult and they bring them to him and he sits upon them and rides in and in this sense he's orchestrating kind of a living parable that is meant to convey truth but also to conceal truth it both at the same time reveals and it conceals Jesus real kingship It concealed his kingship from his enemies, whose unbelief prevented them from seeing the king riding on the donkey. It concealed also from the crowd, who for a moment were filled with this enthusiasm, thinking that a deliverer, a a liberator was coming who would destroy Roman oppression. It hid the kingdom from such people. They did not perceive it. And yet now, as we see this, as Matthew reveals it to us and writes it for us, it also reveals for us the true way, the manner of his kingship. The way Jesus will save his people and the way that he will assume the throne as king of kings and lord of lords, again, would not be through strength, but through weakness, not by by exalting himself, but by humbling himself, he would be made king. We saw this earlier, even David himself, right? The son of David. David himself was one who assumed the kingship, not on an incline towards glory where things just got easier and you simply just assumed the throne at some point. But David takes the throne after being hunted by Saul, cast out of the land, and through great humiliation, he is then exalted, not by himself, but by God. Remember, David had many opportunities to exalt himself. He knew he was the anointed of God. He knew the kingdom would be given to him, and he had opportunity after opportunity to kill King Saul and assume the throne. Remember David is hiding in the cave and Saul happens by the Lord's providence to walk in to relieve himself and then David sneaks up upon him and cuts off a piece of his robe. David had every opportunity to slay King Saul and to assume the throne. But rather than taking it into his own hands, rather than being ambitious in that regard, he entrusts himself to the Lord and knew that if he was to be exalted as king, his kingship could not be established on his own ambition, but by God's acting, and by God exalting him. And God delights to exalt those of lowly estate. So too with, with David as with Christ. Christ comes lowly to lay down his life, mounted on this donkey as a living parable showing us that the way up is the way down and the way to glory is through suffering and the way of exaltation is the way of humiliation and that the cross precedes the crown. Jesus demonstrates this which is why it it commences, puts into play this whole week that will lead to his very death on a cross but one that does not end in death as we're going to hear next week but one that ends in resurrection, in eternal life. And so for this reason, the angels look upon the good news of the gospel with great wonder. In the hymn we had sung before uh, we uh, turn to God's word here, one of, the, uh, one of the verses went like this, Ride on, ride on in majesty, the winged squadrons of the sky look down with sad and wondering eyes to see the approaching sacrifice. They see him approaching there, humble on his donkey, There like a lamb led to the slaughter. There like a sheep trotting along to the slaughterhouse. Willingly, knowingly, intentionally doing it. And he's there moving along, calling the donkeys to be brought to him. Riding upon them out of love for his people, for you. That we today might be gathered together in his name. Knowing with full assurance that our sins are forgiven because of his blood shed for us. And so we've seen the nature of his kingdom, the way of his kingdom, and then also the salvation of his kingdom. He came to save us from our sins. And therefore, if he were to do that, he must not take up strength, but he must lay down his life as a substitute for us. The salvation he brings is one that not merely brings us political freedom, but rather one that makes us right with God and undoes the power of sin and loosens the grip of death that we too might walk out in eternal life. That's the kind of salvation that he could win. And that's, that salvation is only won as he demonstrates it through weakness and through humility. And so we've seen the prophecy regarding the city of David, the potentate riding into the city of David. And finally, we want to think about the people rejoicing in David's royal city. So as he enters into this city. Like a living parable. Revealing and concealing. It says that the crowds went before him. In verse 9. And they followed him. They were shouting. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so they offer up this praise. Kind of a, a two-fold praise. They proclaim God's salvation. And praise God for it as the son of David, right? David, uh, uh, Jesus is heralded by them as the son of David. Remember, all the expectations behind that son. And Jesus is proclaimed by them. Again, they had misconceptions about what he would bring. But they in some sense recognized, in spite of themselves, that he truly was the son of David. Who would assume the throne, in whose hand the scepter would be placed. And whose kingdom would have no end. Took a break this week from uh, the book of Daniel. We had preached uh, through chapter six of the book of Daniel. And over and over again, right, Daniel is concerned about the kingdom. And, he's, and he makes the point over and over again that the kingdoms of this world will perish and be blown away in the dustbin of history. But the kingdom of God alone is eternal. The kingdom of God alone will remain forever and ever. And it is such that kingdom has come in the son of David, in Jesus Christ. It's in his hand that the scepter will never depart. And so they proclaim to Hosanna to the son of David. They go on to say in the middle of that Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, misconceptions, and yet the truth is hidden there. He comes in the name of the Lord, and then they declare their hosannas to to heaven itself, hosanna in the highest. The kingdom is one that would come from heaven itself, come from God as he would establish it. And while the peoples, as they rejoiced in the king coming into the city, yet they did so with misconceptions, but we... As we think upon King Jesus riding humbly into the city of Jerusalem to fulfill all the hopes of that city and to bring its glory um, in such a way that it would extend to the ends of the earth, we ourselves could respond properly with offering up, firstly, a true hosanna in the highest. That as we see the the approaching sacrifice, as we see our king mounted humbly upon a donkey riding into the city to die, so we offer up glory to God in the highest. With full recognition that this is the kind of king we needed. And that he has sent the king we needed. Right? A, fa- a good father, if you ask for bread, isn't going to give you a stone. Right, A father knows what his children need. And while we often might think we need a certain Savior, a certain Deliverer, this is what Christ must be like, yet God has given us the Savior we deeply, truly need, one that leads us out of sin and death and brings us into a new creation, a new kingdom, where we will reign with him forever and ever. And in that regard, with those who have, for those who have eyes to see, we can offer up a true Hosanna in the highest. Praise to God in the highest. Salvation has come, and he has sent his son, from heaven to accomplish this. We too can offer up a true hosanna to the son of David, recognizing what that really means, that the son of David would come to the throne by the way of humiliation. I had quoted this um, earlier in the first service, but it's worth quoting again, and one that should be seared into our minds and really our lives should be pressed into this pattern. Philippians 2 Speaking of Christ, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the work of the true son of David. But it doesn't end there, of course, right? Because Paul goes on to say, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. So with the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth. And every tongue confess that he is Lord. How did he get there? Through the lowest humiliation, he is raised to the highest place of honor and Glory. And as we recognize him as the Son of David, the one in whose hand the scepter will not ever depart, the one whose reign today is eternal, the one who today possesses all authority in heaven and on earth, then we too today can offer up a true Hosanna to the the Son of David. This text here calls us then to respond with praise to God in our hearts that then flows out in our lives as we live for him. And that brings us then to our response, our third response, not only to offer up a Hosanna in the highest and a Hosanna to the Son of David, but then to follow the Son of David into that city and to identify ourselves with him there. The author of Hebrews encourages us towards this end in Hebrews chapter 13. There in Hebrews chapter 13, one of my uh, favorite verses, I think, in the whole Bible. There at verse 13 and following. It says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp, and and that is to Jesus, outside the camp, and bear the reproach he endured, for here we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Can you say this? Can you join the author of Hebrews, whoever it might have been, saying, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Well, what city is that? Well, the author earlier in Hebrews 11, verse 10 says, it's the very city that Abraham long ago looked forward to. Hebrews 11, verse 10 says, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And then later in verse 13, it says, And then if you just jump to chapter 12, verse 22, of this city, we are brought into it to be given a a small tour of it. He says to the church, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Jerusalem on earth was always intended to be a a shadow, a picture of the heavenly Jerusalem, the place from where God's son would truly reign. And therefore, Jesus, as he has assumed his kingship, assumes it not in the earthly Jerusalem. We don't look forward to that. We don't expect Christ to come again and take up his reign in Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem all along pointed to the heavenly Jerusalem, where Christ is today as King of kings and Lord of lords, reigning over all things. And it's to that city we set our hearts. And it's to that city that we long for and pilgrim to. And it's because of that city we can joyfully confess here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come, and that city we have entrance to. The gates of that city swing wide open for you as the people of God, because your Savior rode into there one day with blood to lay down his life so the gates of righteousness might open up for his people who themselves were not righteous. And that we with full confidence can say, open to me the gates of righteousness, that the righteous may enter in, as we find ourselves clothed with the righteousness of him who rode humbly upon a donkey into that city long ago. And therefore, the hymn that we had sung in the beginning, March on, march on in majesty, is one that we sing with great joy in our hearts, Because we sing it with recourse to no other. We we, we sing to the Savior to ride on, and he has, because we know that if he doesn't, all hope is lost. If Christ turned away from the city of Jerusalem, we have nothing. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. And the wrath of God remains upon us. But Christ rode on. And he entered into that city to save his people. And so with recourse to no other deliverer, we call upon the Savior and we say, ride on, ride on in majesty. Ride on to die. Ride on to lay down your life and take it up again to reign over all. Ride on, ride on in majesty and lowly pomp ride on bow your meek head to mortal pain, then take, O God, your power and reign. Christ has done this. He has ridden on. He has gone into Jerusalem and he has taken up his power to reign as King of Kings today. And so with joy in our hearts, with recourse to no other, we praise the name of Jesus Christ and call upon him alone, for he alone can save us from our sins and bring us into his kingdom, into that city whose designer and builder is God. Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that you have not treated us as our sins deserve. You have sent a Savior. And thank you, Christ our Lord, that though while we were still your enemies, you laid down your life for us. While we walked as those who opposed your reign and your rule, yet you came and subdued our hearts and brought them to trust in you. Father, if there are any here today whose hearts have not been subdued, who continue in the hardness of them against you, may you soften them through your word, and may they look to you. For we have no recourse to any other but save Christ alone. And so may you work faith in our hearts and strengthen our faith in him, that we might rest in him and seek none other outside of him. Thank you that our Savior did ride on. He rode into Jerusalem to lay down his life and that he might take it up again, having endured all mortal pain, that he might reign with power over all creation, over heaven and earth. Father, may we look to him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.